Hey, we're back. Oh. Uh, hopefully no cooking disasters during this one. No. Uh, though <laughs> we, were, fine. we were able to, able to salvage it. Yeah. For all those keeping up with our, uh, our, our cooking related things. But, it could have gone really wrong. Like ha- what, like how much beef chuck, how many dollars worth of beef chuck could have been laid waste. Laid waste. Yes. Uh, but you know, it, it, re- it, it, Brought up and then, you know, uh, resolved a uh, classic marital issue of, you know, that pot seems to be boiling much more than a simber, but I'm not going to correct Molly on this because <laughs> I, I assume she knows what she's doing here. And then I love to have so anyone assume that I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Certainly don't get any of that in my professional life. But lo and behold, I knew it was best. And I should have corrected. <laughs> Chris. Corrected my wife. Chris knows best. Yes. Everyone, everybody hates Chris. but Chris <laughs> knows best. Yes. Chrisley knows best. You know that TV show from the horrible channel? Chrisley knows best? There's there's a strange man who's like, I think he decorates houses or flips them, and it's like TLC. Oh, yeah. And his name's like Chrisley. And he's like, his whole thing is like, he's a bit foppish or whatever, and yet he seems to be somewhat heterosexual. Does, and does also he have has a the big velveteen touch of a dandy fop? He, is that from something? Yeah, it's from Mr. Show. Okay. Um, yeah, I think he does. I have to fact check myself. That's just, anyway. That's just the vibe it gave off. I think I've only seen it in th- like three minutes. Okay. Matters. So, girl, uh, have you missed a certain big guy? Oh wow! Yay, we're back. I have missed. It's him. probably been like a hundred plus pages. Yeah, it's been quite a while. Uh, I mean, really, the last time we saw him was uh, when he got shot. So. There's like one catch up portion with him after that, right? It's, I think it just says that he's in. in no, the it's uh, it's Joel like talking to him at his at his side, right? Or thinking about him at his side. Just thinking about it. I don't even know if she's there. I think it's her in like transit. But she does obviously. She does. She does visit him. Okay, great. But let's get into it. Let's get into it. This is the Infinite Cast. Your podcast. The ceiling was breathing. It bulged and receded. It swelled and settled. The room was in Saint Elizabeth's Hospital's trauma wing. Whenever he looked at it, the ceiling bulged and then deflated, shiny as a lung. When Don was a massive toddler, his mother had put them in a little beach house just back of the dunes off a public beach in Beverly. The place was affordable because it had a big ragged hole in the roof. Origin of hole unknown. (laughs) Gately's outsized crib had been in the beach house's little living room right under the hole. The guy... uh, This happened to my dad. Hole in in roof? Yeah, his, uh, his, his, he and his family grew up in, uh, pretty severe poverty in um springfield illinois and uh there was indeed a hole in the roof enough that the the boys the brothers would sleep out on the porch during the uh the summers damn yeah tin roof rusted Rusted. yep uh this is a love shack uh the guy that owned the little cottages off the dunes had stapled thick clear polyurethane sheeting across the room's ceiling it was an attempt to deal with the hole the polyurethane bulged and settled in the North Shore wind and seemed like some monstrous vacuole inhaling and exhaling directly over Little Gately, lying there, wide-eyed. The breathing polyurethane vacuole had seemed like it developed a character and personality as winter deepened and the winds grew worse. Gately, aged like four, had regarded the vacuole as a living thing and had named it Herman and had been afraid of it. He couldn't feel the right side of his upper body. He couldn't move in any real sense of the word. The hospital room had that misty quality rooms and fevers have. Gately lay on his back. Ghostish figures materialized at the peripheries of his vision and hung around and then dematerialized. The ceiling bulged and receded. Gately's own breath hurt his throat. 
His throat felt somehow raped. The blurred figure in the next bed sat up very still in bed in a sitting position and seemed to have a box on its head. Gately kept having a terrible, repetitious, ethnocentric dream that he was robbing the house of an Oriental and had the guy tied to a chair and was trying to blindfold him blindfold him with quality mailing twine from the drawer under the Oriental's kitchen phone. The Oriental kept being able to see around the twine and kept looking steadily at Gately and blinking inscrutably. Plus, the Oriental had no nose or mouth, just a smooth expanse of lower facial skin and wore a silk robe and scary sandals and had no hair on its legs. What Gately perceived as light cycles and events all out of normal sequence was really Gately going in and out of consciousness. Gately did not perceive this. It seemed to him more like he kept coming up for air and then being pushed below the surface of something. Once when Gately came up for air, he found that resident Tiny Ewell was seated in a chair right (laughs) up next to the bed. Tiny's little slim hand was on the bed's crib-type railing, and his chin rested on the hand, so his face was right up close. The ceiling bulged and receded. The room's only light was what spilled in from the nighttime hall. Nurses glided down the hall and passed the door in subsonic footwear. A tall and slumped, ghostish figure appeared to Gately's left, off past the blurred, seated, square-head boy's bed, slumped and fluttering, appearing to rest its tailbone on the sill of the dark window. I was a bit confused about who the square-headed boy is, but now now I remember. Yes. TV, uh, the kid who had the Eschaton accident. I think it's Otis P. Lewis. Oh, whose head's inside a TV? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> the ceiling rounded on down and then settled back flat. Gately rolled his eyes up at Ewell. Ewell had shaved off his blunt white goatee. His hair was so completely clean and white, it took a faint pink cast from the pink of his scalp below. Ewell had been discoursing to him for an unknown length of time. It was Gately's first full night in St. Elizabeth's Hospital's trauma wing. He didn't know what night of the week it was. His circadian rhythm was the least of the personal rhythms that had been scrambled. (laughs) His right side felt encased in a kind of hot cement, also a sick throb in what he assumed was a toe. He wondered dimly about going to the bathroom, if and when. Ewell was right in the middle of speaking. Gately couldn't tell if Ewell was whispering. Nurses glided across the doorway's light. Their sneakers were so noiseless the nurses seemed to be on wheels. A stolid shadow of somebody in a hat was cast obliquely across the hall's tile floor just outside the room, as if a stolid figure were seated just outside the door, against the wall, in a hat. (laughs) My wife's personal term for soul is personality, as in there's something incorrigibly dark in your personality, Eldred Ewell, and Dewar's brings it out. The hall floor was pretty definitely white tile with a cloudy, overwaxed shine in the bright fluorescence out there. Some kind of red or pink stripe ran down the center of the hall. Gately couldn't tell if Tiny Ewell thought he was awake or unconscious or what. It was in the fall term of third grade as a child that I found myself falling in with the bad element. (laughs) They were a group of tough, blue-collar Irish lads bust in from the East Watertown projects. Runny noses, home-cut hair, frayed cuffs, quick with their fists, sports mad, fond of sneaker hockey on asphalt, Ewell said. And yet strangely, I, unable to even do one pull-up in the president's physical fitness test, quickly became the leader of the pack we all fell into. The blue-collar lads all seemed to admire me for attributes that were not clear. We formed a sort of club. Our uniform was a gray scally cap. Our clubhouse was the dugout of a little league diamond that had fallen into disuse. Our club was called the Money Stealers Club. (laughs) 
At my suggestion, we went with a descriptive name as opposed to euphemistic. The name was mine. The Irish lads acquiesced. They viewed me as the brains of the operation. I held them in a kind of thrall. This was due in large part to my for my <laughs> this was due in large part to my capacity for rhetoric. <laughs> Even the toughest and most brutish Irish lad respects a gilded tongue. This is true. Yes. Uh, even the toughest, oh, sorry, our club was formed for the express purpose of undertaking a bunco operation. We went around to people's homes after school, ringing the doorbell and soliciting donations for Project Hope Youth Hockey. There was no such organization. Our donation receptacle was a chock full of nuts can with Project Hope Youth Hockey written on a strip of masking tape wrapped around the can. The lad who made the receptacle had spelled project with a G in the first draft. I ridiculed <laughs> him for the error, and the whole club pointed at him and laughed brutally. It's a pretty clever scheme. I bet you could get away with this pretty pretty much. Although I bet going door to door for like selling, you know, wrapping paper, stuff like that, mm-hmm. is that now something that kids would only and completely do in the presence of their parents? Yeah, I assume everything's less uh loosey goosey than it yeah. used to be. I mean, they used to send um you know, I was a Girl Scout. Actually, I would think I was only a brownie. I don't think I graduated to Girl Scouts, and so I sold the cookies. And they it, they sent us down to the the school down the way for incorrigible youth <laughs> alone to sell cookies. Can you believe it? I don't think it would happen now. We yeah, did get rides, but I think part of it, we were trying to teach us some kind of like responsibility I, of like knocking on the door. Yeah, I have to assume that at the very very most, you would be uh, tailing your kids. Mm-hmm. in a car and letting them walk up to the front doors of places alone. Can we agree? I mean, what what is the rate of kidnapping uh, kids that the person doesn't know? I feel like it's got to be incredibly low. I'm sure... That's a crazy crime. Yeah, I'm sure it would be uh, probably in raw numbers something that you would find sh- shocking, like, I don't know, like 15,000 kids a year. Yeah. But in terms of overall rate of, like, kids in Full the country... stranger danger. Yeah. Yeah, per 100,000. I per feel like it would be like point four. Yeah, yeah. Almost never. I would look into it, but I don't want to um, yeah. be tracked as someone who's looking well, that's into the stealing about, a kid. That's the problem with having kids, is that statistically, kids will be fine. But the pro- but the possibility of your kid uh, having something wrong to it. Yeah. We like, already have a, a, a rampant um, yeah. issue in our country of stealing kids. It's called uh, poverty that causes kids to go into the foster system or yes. get adopted. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, this is also a downstream effect from no longer living in a society where it's generally expected that you would have like 10 kids. So you'd have like one or two to spare. <laughs> You know, because bring that back because <laughs> if we're going to happen, if we're going forced birth in this country, let's just go fucking crazy. Yeah. Well, you would need some way to sustain that kind of, the kind of expenditures that you would need. So I, I you know, I don't know. Uh, not that I want to be callous about having a kids. And certainly once we have kids, I, I know that the insanity, the the uh, the um, insanity hormones start pumping and you be you become uh, despite your best your your will to not be mm-hmm. you become uh, insane about your children. Yeah. But I mean, come on. Again, when you're running the statistics, your kid's not going to get kidnapped. Yeah, it's... You, like, one's kid is not going to get kidnapped. <laughs> it's fine. Let them yeah. sell the candy. Yeah. Let them sell, let them sell the, let them cook. Uh, you will kept staring at the crude blue jailhouse square and canted cross on Gately's forearms. Our only visible credentials were knee pads and sticks we'd purloined from the P.E. stockroom. By my order, all were, he- all, all were held carefully to conceal the, and this is like a um, shortened version, the property of West 
some WTTN Elm school uh, emblazoned down the side of every stick. One lad had a goalie mask on under his scally cap. Uh, the rest knee pads and carefully held sticks. The knee pads were turned inside out for the same reason. I couldn't even skate, and my mother absolutely forbade rough play on asphalt. I wore a necktie and combed my hair carefully after each solicitation. I was the spokesperson, the mouthpiece, the bad lads called me. They were Irish Catholics all. Oh, Watertown. Uh, Watertown from east to west is Catholic, Armenian, and mixed. The east side boys all but genuflected to my gift for bullshit. I was exceptionally smooth with adults. I rang doorbells, and the lads arrayed themselves behind me on the porch. I spoke of disadvantaged youth, and team spirit, and fresh air, and the meaning of competition, and alternatives to the after-school streets' bad element. I spoke of mothers and support hoes, and war-injured older brothers with elaborate prostheses cheering disadvantaged lads on to victory against far better equipped teams. I discovered that I had a gift for it, the emotional appeal of adult rhetoric. It was the first time I felt personal power. I was unrehearsed and creative and moving. Hard-cased homeowners who came to the door in sleeveless tees holding tall boys of beer with stubble and expressions of minimal charity were often weeping openly by the time we <laughs> left their porch. I was called a fine lad and a good kid and a credit to me mum and da. My hair, became, my hair was tousled so often I had to carry a mirror and comb. The coffee can became hard to carry back to the dugout where we hid it behind a cinder block bench support. We'd netted over $100 by Halloween. This was a serious amount in those days. Tiny Yule and the ceiling kept receding and then looming in, bulging roundly. Figures Gately didn't know from Adam kept popping in and out of fluttery view in different corners of the room. The space between his bed and the other bed seemed to distend and then contract with a slow sort of boinging motion. <laughs> Gately's eyes kept rolling up in his head, his upper lip mustached with sweat. And I was reveling in the fraud of it, the discovery of the gift, Yule was saying. I was flush with adrenaline. I had tasted power, the verbal manipulation of human hearts. The lads called me the gilded blarneyman. <laughs> Soon the first order fraud wasn't enough. I began secretly filching receipts from the club's chock full of nuts can, embezzling. I persuaded the lads it was too risky to keep the can in the open air dugout and took personal charge of the can. I kept the can in my bedroom and persuaded my mother that it contained Christmas-connected gifts and must, under no circumstances, be inspected. To my underlings in the club, I claimed to be rolling the coins and depositing them in a high-interest savings account I'd opened for us in the name Franklin W. Dixon. In fact, I was buying myself Pez and Milky Ways and Mad Magazines and a Creeple People brand deluxe oven and mold set with six different colors of goo, Oh, hey, do you ever do creepy crawlies? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Creeple people. Wow. Creeple I, have, people. I have not heard it refer to that. Yes, I had a creepy creepy crawler uh, oven. Yeah. Uh, I I went to a friend's. I did not have my own, but no, because you were a girl, you had an easy bake oven. I did have an easy bake oven. That shit rocked. Uh, do you know Anthony from um, Queer Eyes hosting a easy bake oven competition on Netflix? Oh my god. He's in he's in hell. <laughs> I don't think he wants oh, to be there. Oh, that's that's grim content. Oh, Especially fuck. since my one of my favorite drag queens, Trixie Mattel, already does that on YouTube. Uh, that's that's real rough. Yeah, not great. Uh, I'm I'm he's in a prison of his own making of being cute and uh, being like cooking. Yes, <laughs> I would ha I would have to alcohol actively become an alcoholic if I found myself in that. Uh, situation. He probably gets high as hell. Yeah. Like he, he's probably, he's probably on a nice like weed and Adderall cocktail. 
That sounds nice. Alert, I could maybe, alert, and a little, a little, dreamy. A, a little out of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a, that's like a, a an edible form of dissociation. Alert, alert enough to be able to obey, you know, things like cut and uh, you know rolling or and whatever. Muster up the adequate energy energy to give a perfunctory yes. My, to, I might uh, have to make you watch one of these episodes. Oh God, kill me! I was I was already suffering enough watching. Is it cake? Is it cake? Um, sorry, that's that's one for me. That's for the girls. At f- uh, this was in the early 1970s. At first, I was discreet, grandiose, but discreet. At first, the embezzlement was controlled, but the power h- had roused something dark in my personality, and the adrenaline drove it forward. Self-will run riot. Soon, the club's coffee can was empty by each weekend's end. Each week's haul went towards some uncontrolled Saturday binge of puerile consumption. I doctored up flamboyant bank statements to show the club in the dugout. I got more loquacious and imperious with them. None of the lads thought to question me or the purple magic marker the bank statements were done in. I was not dealing with intellectual titans here, I knew. <laughs> they were nothing but malice and muscle, the worst of the school's bad element. And I ruled them. Thrall. They trusted me completely in the rhetorical gift. In retrospect, they probably could not conceive of any sane third grader with glasses and a necktie trying to defraud them, given the inevitably brutal consequences. Any sane third grader... But I was no longer a sane third grader. I lived only to feed the dark thing in my personality, which told me any consequences could be forestalled by my gift and grand personal aura. It's giving FTX. Yes, it is. <laughs> but then, of course, eventually Christmas hove into view. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, not hove. Gately tries, to <laughs> Gately tries to stop Yule and say hove and finds to his horror that he can't make any sounds come out. I think one of the... One of the funniest recurring bits in this book is when uh is when Wallace makes a bizarre uh vocabulary choice and then comments on it in the next line. He's like, What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. In the next line or or shortly thereafter, which is uh both an acknowledgement that the the word is uh out of use or uh, tangentially useful, but he's also he's so proud of knowing uh you know, he has his yeah. little a little vocab. I mean, not not to be a, a a bit of a drip, but like some sometimes I'll say what I think is a normal sentence, and then whoever I'm talking to is like, "Ooh, SAT word." And I'm like, "SAT word? It's just a word." Yeah, it's just a word. But sorry, I do just... you think he's speaking from his own um, experience when he describes uh, Hal's um, uh, uh, sorry? Is it raining? Is it raining? Yeah. Um, Encyclo- what do you call it? Encyclopedic recall picture. He's got an actual uh, pho- photogra- uh, photographic, photographic recall of recall. the dictionary. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like that's uh, an exaggerated version of what yes. I imagine DFW feels naturally. Yeah, I can see him as a, as a, a little savant, uh, just reading the dictionary and partially memorizing huge chunks of it. Uh, the meaty Catholic East Side bad element lads now wanted to tap their non-existent Franklin W. Dixon account to buy support hose and sleeveless tees for their swarthy blue-collar families. I held them off as long as I could with pedantic blather on interest penalties and fiscal years. Irish Catholic Christmas is no laughing matter, though, and for the first time, their swarthy eyes began to narrow at me. Things at school grew increasingly tense. One afternoon, the largest and swarthiest of them assumed control of the can in an ugly dugout coup. It was a blow from which my authority never recovered. I began to feel a gnawing fear. My denial broke. I realized I'd gradually embezzled far more than I could ever make good. At home, I began talking up the merits of private school curricula at the dinner table. 
<laughs> the can's weekly take fell off sharply as holiday expenses drained homeowners of change and patience. This bear market in giving was attributed by some of the club's swarthier lads to my deficiencies. The whole club began muttering in the dugout. I began to learn that one could perspire heavily even in a bitterly cold open-air dugout. Then on the first day of Advent, the lad now in charge of the can produced childish-looking figures and announced the whole club wanted their share of the accrued booty in the Dixon account. I bought time with vague allusions to co-signatures and a misplaced passbook. I arrived home with chattering teeth and bloodless lips and was forced by my mother to swallow fish oil. I was consumed with puerile fear. I felt small and weak and evil and consumed by dread of my embezzlement exposure. Not to mention the brutal consequences. I claimed intestinal distress and stayed home from school. The telephone began ringing in the middle of the night. I could hear my father saying, hello, hello. I did not sleep. My personality's dark part had grown leathery wings and a beak and turned on me. <laughs> there were still several days until Christmas vacation. I lie in bed, panicked during school hours amid piles of ill-gotten mad magazines and creeple people figures and listen to the lonely handheld bells of the Salvation Army Santas on the street below and think of synonyms for dread and doom. I began to know shame and to know it as grandiosity's Ed de Camp. <laughs> my uh, unsuspicious <laughs> my unsuspicious I'm sure that Don knows what that is too my unspecific digestive illness wore on and teachers sent cards and concerned notes on some days the door buzzer would buzz after school hours and my mother would come upstairs and say how sweet Eldred that there were swarthy and cuff frayed but clearly good hearted boys in gray scally caps on the stoop asking after me and declaring that they were keenly awaiting my return to school. I began to gnaw on the bathroom soap in the morning to make a convincing case for staying home. <laughs> my mother was alarmed at the masses of bubbles I vomited and threatened to consult a specialist. I felt myself moving closer and closer to some cliff edge at which everything would come out. I longed to be able to lean into my mother's arms and weep and confess all. I could not, for the shame. Three or four of the Money Stealers Club's harder cases took up afternoon positions by the nativity scene in the churchyard across from our house and <laughs> stared stonily up at my bedroom window, pounding their fists in their palms. I began to understand what a Belfast Protestant must feel. <laughs> but even more prospectively dreadful than pummelings from Irish Catholics was the prospects of my parents finding out my personality had a dark thing that had driven me to grandiose wickedness and left me there. Gately has no idea how Ewell feels about him making no responses, whether Ewell doesn't like it or even notices it or what. He can breathe okay, but something in his raped throat won't let whatever is supposed to vibrate to speak vibrate. Finally, on the day before my gastroenterologist appointment, when my mother was down the street at a speculum party, what? <laughs> I crept downstairs from my sick bed and stole over $100 from a shoebox marked IBEW local, <laughs> local 517 Petty Slush in the back of my father's den's closet. <laughs> I'd never dreamed of resorting to the shoebox before, stealing from my own parents to remit funds I'd stolen from dull-witted boys with whom I'd stolen them from adults I'd lied to. My feelings of fear and despicability only increased. I now felt ill for real. I lived and moved in the shadow of something dark that hovered just overhead. I vomited without aid of emetic now, but secretly, so I could return to school. I couldn't face the prospect of a whole Christmas vacation of swarthy sentries pounding their palms outside the house. 
I converted my father's union's bills to small change and paid off the money stealers club and got pummeled anyway, apparently on general bad element principles. I discovered the latent rage in followers, the fate of the leader who falls from the mob's esteem. I was pummeled and given a savage wedgie and hung from a hook in my school locker where I remained for several hours, swollen and mortified. And going home was worse. Home was no refuge, for home was the scene of the third order crime, of theft cubed. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned. There were night terrors. I was unable to eat, no matter how long after supper I had to stay at the table. The more worried about me my parents became, the greater my shame. I felt a shame and personal despicability no third grader should have to feel. The holidays were not jolly. I looked back over the autumn and failed to recognize anybody named Eldridge K. Ewell Jr. It no longer seemed a question of insanity or dark parts of me. I had stolen from neighbors, slum children, and family, and bought myself sweets and toys. Under any tenable definition of bad, I was bad. I resolved to toe the virtuous line from then on. The shame and horror was too awful. I had to remake myself. I resolved to do whatever was required to see myself as good, remade. I never knowingly committed another felony. The whole shameful interval of the Money Stealers Club was moved to mental storage and buried there. Dawn, I'd forgotten it ever happened. Until the other night. Dawn, the other night, after the fracas and your display of reluctant say ofendando, which <laughs> takes us to uh, uh, 337, Latin blunder for self-defense's say defendando is sick, either a befogged muddling of a professional legal term or a post-Freudian slip, or least likely, a very oblique and subtle jab at Gately from a Yule intimate with a graveyard scene from Hamlet, namely uh, VI9. Should we go go intratextual and read that? Scene VI9? Scene 5, Act 5, 1. Act 6, Scene 9? Act, yeah, I don't know. I've forgotten. I paid so much money, and yet I forget the Shakespeare. What is the phrase? Say de- defendando. Uh, say offendando. Say offendando. Yeah. Is that S E? S E. Often. Often D D E N D O. D. Often D E N D O. Uh, Hamlet. Okay, keep going. Back to the text. After your injury and the whole aftermath. Dawn, I dreamed the whole mad, repressed third-grade interval of grandiose perfidy all over again. Vividly. Perfidity, one of my favorite words. Yes. Vividly and completely. When I awoke, I was somehow minus my goatee, and my hair was center-parted in a fashion I haven't favored for 40 years. The bed was soaked, and there was a gnawed-looking cake of McDade's special anti-acne soap in my hand. Gately starts to short-term recall that he was offered IV Demerol for the pain of his gunshot wound immediately on admission to the ER and has been offered Demerol twice by shift doctors who haven't bothered to read the history of narcotics dependency, no Schedule C uh, IV plus medic, that Gately'd make Pat Montesian swear she'd make them put in italics on his file or chart or whatever first thing. Last night's emergency surgery was remedial, not extractive, because the big pistol's ordinance had apparently fragmented on impacting and passed through the meters of muscle that surrounded Gately's humerus ball and scalpula socket, passing through and missing bone, but doing great and various damage to soft tissues. The, ER, the ER's trauma specialist had prescribed Toradol IM, which takes us to note 338, 
ketorolic trimethamine, a non-narcotic analgesic, little more than Motrin with ambition (laughs) from Syntex Labs. Back to the text. Uh, But had warned that the pain after the surgery's general anesthetic wore off was going to be unlike Gately had ever imagined. The next thing Gately knew, he was upstairs in a trauma wing room that trembled with sunlight, and a different doctor was speculating to either Pat M. or Calvin T. that the invasive foreign body had been treated with something unclean before, possibly, because Gately's developed a massive infection, and they're monitoring him for something he heard as noxema, but is really toxemia. Gately also wanted to protest that his body was 100% American, but he seemed temporarily unable to vocalize aloud. Later, it was nighttime. Oh, fo- a foreign body, I see. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, later, it was nighttime and Yule was there intoning. It was totally unclear what Yule wanted from Gately or why he was choosing this particular time to share. Gately's right shoulder was almost the same size as his head, and he had to roll his eyes up and over like a cow to see Yule's hand on the railing and his face floating above it. And how will I administer the ninth step when it comes time to make amends? How can I start to make reparations? Even if I could remember the homes of the citizens we defrauded, how many could there still be living? The club lads have doubtless scattered into various low-rent districts and dead-end careers. My father lost the IBEW, which takes us to end note 339, <laughs> International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, uh, back to the text, account under the Weld administration and has been dead since 1993. And the revelations would kill my mother. My mother is very frail. She uses a walker, and arthritis has twisted her head nearly all the way around on her neck. My wife jealously protects my mother from all unpleasant facts regarding me. She says someone has to do it. My mother believes right this minute I'm at a nine-month Banque de Genève-sponsored tax law symposium in the Alsace. She keeps sending me... Nine-month tax law symposium. She keeps sending me knitted ski wear that doesn't fit from the rest home. Dawn, this buried interval and the impost I've carried ever uh, ever since may have informed my whole life why I was drawn to tax law, helping wealthy suburbanites two-step around their fair share. My marriage to a woman who looks at me as if I were a dark stain at the back of her child's trousers. My whole descent into somewhat heavier-than-normal drinking may have been some instinctive attempt to bury third-grade feelings of despicability, submerge them in an amber sea. I don't know what to do, Ewell said. Gately was on enough Toradol IM to make his ears ring, plus a saline drip with Dorix, which takes us to endnote 340, doxycycline highclate, an IV antibiotic from Park Davis Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Back to the text. Is every pharmaceutical in this book given its uh, a endnote? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, every, every one. Even the first time. Even uh, the uh, nasal stuff that Seldane. Like, you know. Yeah. The first time it appears. Not every time. Not every time. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to remember despicabilities I can do nothing about. Is this If this is a sample of the more will be revealed, I hereby lodge a complaint. Some things seem better left submerged. No. And everything on his right side was on fire. The pain was getting to be emergency type pain, like scream and yank your charred hand off the stove type pain. Parts of him keeps uh, kept sending up emergency flares to other parts of him, and he could neither move nor call out. I'm scared. From what seemed somewhere overhead and rising was the last thing Gately heard Yule whisper as the ceiling bulged down toward them. 
Yatley wanted to tell Tiny Yule that he could totally fucking ID with Yule's feelings and that if he, <laughs> Tiny, could just hang in and tote that bale and put one little well-shined shoe in front of the other, everything would end up all right, that the god of Yule's understanding would find some way for Yule to make things right, and then he could let the despicable feelings go instead of keeping them down with doers. But Gately couldn't connect the impulse to speak with actual speech still. He settled for trying to reach his left hand across and pat Ewell's hand on the railing, but his own breadth was too far to reach across. And then the white ceiling came all the way down. It made everything white. How are we doing on time? Uh, It's a bit of a scene, you know? That's 32 minutes. Is that a break? Um, a bit of a break. How much, how much more? I think this goes out for, goes on for a bit of a while. I'm seeing three page long paragraphs, four page long paragraphs. We haven't seen Don in a while, you know? Yeah, that looks like another, a whole other chunk, right? Let's do, let's do two more pages and that'll get us to 10, that'll be 10 pages. Okay, yeah, 10 whole pages. That's old school. Uh, he seemed to sort of sleep. He fever dreamed of dark writhing storm clouds writhing darkly and screaming on down the beach at Beverly, Massachusetts. The winds increasing over his head until Herman the polyurethane vacuole burst from the force, leaving a ragged inhaling maw that tugged at Gately's XXL Dr. Denton's. A blue stuffed brontosaurus was sucked upward out of the crib and disappeared into the maw, spinning. His mother was getting the shit beaten out of her by a man with a shepherd's crook in the kitchen and couldn't hear Gately's frantic cries for help. Didn't this, doesn't the this smiley face figure have a shepherd's crook? He does. He broke through the crib's bars with his head <laughs> and went to the front door and ran outside. The black clouds up the beach lowered and roiled, funneling sand, and as Gately watched, he saw a tornado's snout emerge from the clouds and slowly lower. It looked as if the clouds were either giving birth or taking a shit. Gately ran across the beach to the water to escape the tornado. He ran through the crazed breakers to deep, warm water and submerged himself and stayed under until he ran out of breath. It was now no longer clear if he was little Bimmy or the grown man Don. He kept coming up briefly for a great sucking breath and then going back under where it was warm and still. The tornado stayed in one place on the beach, bulging and receding, screaming like a jet, its opening a breathing maw, lightning coming off the funnel cloud like hair. He could hear the tiny, tattered sounds of his mother calling his name. The tornado was right by the beach house, and the whole house trembled. His mother came out the front door, wild-haired and holding a bloody Ginsu knife, calling his name. Gately tried to call for her to come into the deep water with him, but even he couldn't hear his calls against the scream of the storm. She dropped the knife and held her head as the funnel pointed its pointy maw her way. The beach house exploded, and his mother flew through the air toward the funnel's intake, arms and legs threshing, as if swimming in wind. She vanished into the maw and was pulled spinning up into the tornado's vortex. Shingles and boards followed her. No sign of the shepherd's crook of the man who'd hurt her. Gately's right lung burned horribly. He saw his mother for the last time when lightning lit up the funnel's cone. She was whirling around and around like something in a drain, rising, seeming to swim, bluely backlit. The burst of lightning was the white of the sunlit room when he came up for air and opened his eyes. His mother's tiny rotating imago, imago faded against the ceiling. What seemed like heavy breathing was him trying to scream. The skinny bed sheets were soaked and he needed a piss something bad. It was daytime and his right side was in no way numb and he was immediately nostalgic for the warm cement feeling of when it was numb. <laughs> tiny Ewell was gone. His every pulse was an assault on his right side. He didn't think he could stand it for even another second. 
He didn't know what would happen, but he didn't think he could stand it. Later, somebody who was either Joelle Van D or a St. E's nurse in a UHID veil was running a cold washcloth over his face. His face was so big, it took some time to cover it all. It seemed too tender a touch on the cloth for a nurse, but then Gately heard the clink of IV bottles being changed or RN initially messed with somewhere overhead behind him. RN initially messed with. He was unable to ask about changing the sheets or going to the bathroom. Sometime after the veiled lady left, he just gave up and let the piss go, and instead of feeling wet heat, he heard the rising metallic sound of something filling up somewhere near the bed. He couldn't move to lift the covers and see what he was hooked up to. The blinds were up, and the room was so bright white in the sunlight, everything looked bleached and boiled. The guy with either the square head or the box on his head had been taken off someplace, his bed unmade and one crib railing down. There were no ghostish figures or figures in mist. The hallway was no brighter than the room, and Gately couldn't see any shadows of anybody in a hat. He didn't even know if last night had been real. The pain kept making his lids flutter. He hadn't cried over pain since he was four. His last thought before letting his lids stay shut against the brutal white of the room was that he'd maybe been castrated, which was how he'd always heard the term catheterized. (laughs) He could smell rubbing alcohol and a kind of vitamin stink, and himself. At some point, a probably real Pat Montesian came in and got her hair in his eye when she kissed his cheek and told him if he could just hang in and concentrate on getting well, everything would be fine, that everything at the house was back to normal, more or less, and essentially fine, that she was so sorry he'd had to handle a situation like that alone without support or counsel, and that she realized full well Lens and the Canadian thugs hadn't given him enough time to call anybody, that he'd done the very best he could with what he'd had to work with and had nothing to feel horrid about, to let it go, that the violence hadn't been relapse-type thrill-seeking violence, but simply doing the best he could at that moment and trying to stand up for himself and for a resident of the house. Pat Montesian was dressed, as usual, entirely in black, but formally, as in for taking somebody to court, and her formal wear looked like a Mexican widow's. (laughs) She really had said the words thug and horrid. She said not to worry, the house was a community, and it took care of its own. She kept asking if he was sleepy. Their hair's red was a different and less radiant red than the red of Joelle Van D's hair. The left side of her face was very kind. Gately had very little understanding of what she was talking about. He was kind of surprised the finest hadn't come calling already. Pat didn't know about the remorseless ADA or the suffocated knuck. Gately tried hard to share openly about the wreckage of his past, but some issues still seemed suicidal to share about. Pat said that Gately was showing tremendous humility and willingness sticking to his resolution about nothing stronger than non-narcotic painkillers, but that she hoped he'd remember that he wasn't in charge of anything except putting himself in his higher power's hands and following the dictates of his heart. That codeine or maybe Percocet, which takes us to end note 341, oxycodone hydrochloride plus acetaminophen, a Schedule C3 narcotic oral analgesic, analgesic from DuPont Pharmaceuticals. Back to the text. Or maybe even Demerol wouldn't be a relapse unless his heart of heart that knew heart of hearts that knew his motives thought it would be. Her red hair was down and looked uncombed and mashed in on the side. She looked frazzled. Gately wanted very much to ask Pat about the legal fallout of the other night's thug fracas. He realized she kept asking if he was sleepy because his attempts to speak looked like yawns. His inabilities to still speak was like speechlessness in bad dreams, airless and hellish, horrid. 
I get speechlessness in bad dreams all the time. Does that yeah. ever happen to you? Yep. That's, in fact, that's one of the main modes of bad dreams I have mm-hmm. is inability to act, to move, to be in a situation where I can't move mm-hmm. uh, or speak despite yeah. needing to or wanting to. Uh, what gets expressed now more these days is being aware of a time that something needs to happen, but basically being incapable of managing the time and like hours go by. Like having a flight at 7 p.m. and like I'm just like, oh my god, I really should be going to the airport, but, but I, just I can't, can't. I can't go to the airport. Yeah, I must go to the airport. I can't go to the airport. I can't. Board, I, I will can't go. go to the airport. I will go to the airport. Yeah, I should go to the airport. Um, well, you know, more again, more hero of an action, and like he literally cannot act, uh, and yet we must see from his perspective. I guess I don't know how you would uh, say say that you wanted uh narcotics in this state other than just being like (laughs) yeah it's it seems pretty horrid to uh be awake and be in pain and and also just being disoriented and i i I, my my main thing would being like other than you know interacting with tiny yule or whatever being like god I, i would just want any person of authority to come and tell me what was up yeah 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 Especially, yeah, the legal aspect of it, or be I, or just like yeah, talk to a nurse and be, be like, when will when will this end? Will it end? How will it end? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, do, no drugs for Gately. We'll see how that goes. Uh, uh, a a tale of youthful moralism, uh, as befitting a um, a Dickens or a uh, oh God, who's the guy who did the uh, the ragged Dick story? Uh, he's an American author. Twain? No, uh, he did uh, tales of youthful moral moralism in uh, Gilded Age America. Oh, who did Ragged Dick? Uh, this Gilded Age auth- author of tales of ragged moral of <laughs> of youthful moralism uh, was popular in the Gilded Age and was the author of Ragged Dick. The answer is. Who is Horatio Alger? Of course. Ah, uh, Horatio Alger. Yes, an an Alger-esque story of uh of youthful transgression and moral moralism uh nestled in our our little story here. Great. Uh what do you what do you make of Tiny Yule's tale? I mean, it's funny that, you know, the kind of AA recovery thing is a theme of this book is like memories get uncovered that people like bury with substances, right? Yes. But it then took not just quitting doers uh but then this instance of don basically kind of sacrificing himself for someone who sucked yes uh that made uh tiny you will realize you know he had come it was obviously an incredibly important event in his life and he completely buried it yes um which ha- uh, happens and it uh, it took somebody yes uh oh, boy uh feeling feeling like you've done something wrong Certainly never gets old, but it's worse when you're young, uh, and and you yes. think that you know, um, the you know the consequence. I mean, in his case, the consequences were you know real. I definitely had youthful transgressions that I was just like, oh, imagining, no. imagining it, Ima- yeah, imagining the worst, uh, because you your vision of good and bad at that time is what it's also th- intense. <laughs> uh, there's a thing of about like. Being that age and cr- committing a transgression in which there is no recourse for de-escalation because no matter, even if you have recognized your own wrongdoing mm-hmm. <laughs> and feel genu- genuine remorse, and even if the transgression is not that big, there is 
no way to I mean that's the biggest lie that I feel like parents tell their kids is yeah. that I don't care what you do as long as you don't lie which yes. is a big Cohen in uh, my house yes but it's simply not true because you know that they they that is in they fact a lie to you, you and they you will get punished for doing something wrong even if you tell the truth yes for me um, if, the, if the crime is sufficient if it's like oh I took two cupcakes when I should have only taken one yes uh, perhaps you won't get punished but the certain things where you realize you fucked up enough that you have especially when you get a little older, that you're mm-hmm. generating lies about it. Yes. Especially if those lies are elaborate. Yeah. I mean, truly, one one thing for me that I've noticed in full adulthood is that, you know, doing things that you, that you, that you recognize are, you know, morally wrong, that have hurt someone's feelings or you've, you've it's not just like a mistake where you didn't think about something and then un- unintended consequences happen. When you actually actively do something that ends in a result where you feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. That I don't know about you. I will try everything. My brain's first thing is like, let's figure out how to make an excuse for you feeling bad yes. about it. <laughs> like because the feeling bad is the punishment at the yes, end of the day. Is. Uh, is that right or wrong? I have no idea. But I certainly the the unbelievable cartwheels that my brain does to be like, uh, you know, oh, it's it's not so bad uh, or like, oh, you need you can rationalize this or whatever. It's like, no, you should feel bad about it because you did something wrong. <laughs> is that is that Catholic of me? I don't I, know. I, I have claimed this in the past about you. What? That, that I feel that, that is that is that's Catholic tendencies. Yeah. Or even like it's this is expressed in a slightly different way. But like you ever made a mistake at work? Like uh, all the time, like an er- an error that <laughs> results in you, anything. You, you from know in- me, <laughs> you, Mr. Fi- Mr. Uh, too damn fired. <laughs> yeah. Like th- things at work that result in, in uh, anything from like inconveniencing someone to like something genuinely bad happening. Like that's like far beyond the original scope of what you thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I- I'm just trying to think. I won't. I won't think of examples for my personal life. But I don't know about you. Again. But my first impulse is always to try to figure out how to either rationalize it or blame it on something else. And you can't do that. One, it's like one of the main things about like being a human being is like, this is how I this is how I fucked up, and this is how it has resulted. And now we need to like do something. Yeah, about imagine it. having the type of personality where you just accept your fuck ups and move on. I'm trying every day. <laughs> could, could not be mean. I know that literally nobody does that, but sometimes you meet people who are who are just like, oh. I I screwed up this thing and uh, now I'm moving on and it's fine. Yeah. I guess, uh, sometimes I feel like those people are vaguely sociopathic, but sometimes it should be like healthy to just be like, nope, wrong. Move well, on. because some people also then draw energy from like drawing those things out, like yeah. of making it a whole thing as opposed to somewhat of a thing. Anyway, co- conflict is is weird. Folks, we hate the conflict. There was a tweet going around this week that I saw that was um, someone had sublet their apartment. Did you see this? Sublet their apartment in New York to an NYU student. Oh, my God. That sold was them, so funny. Sold them, like, a bunch of household items at a for steep an agree- discount. For an agreed upon price. For an agreed upon price. $100. And then, you know, asking for this person to cough up that money resulted in being sent, like, you know, you're gaslighting me and uh, your conflict resolution is poor. And here's like an article about it. Yeah, Here's like I'm actually a conflict resolution uh, resource an officer. Anti-racist conflict uh, and, resolution. Uh, this, so this is actually quite my wheelhouse. And also given in that cheery tone where everything's like, hi, I'm actually a conflict resource resolution officer. And here's some resources yeah. I think that you could look at to help. It, deal with your uh, your de-escalation tactics yeah. in everyday conversation. It, see, it seems like, like you, you didn't read my article. To give me a hundred. Do- yes, 
you agreed to give me $100 for the things that I left for you, and you have not given me $100. He was like emotional terrorism clippy. I mean, like, Hi, it seems like you're trying to ask me for an amount of money that we agreed on. Have you considered reading this article instead? Uh, you're gaslighting me. This was like a Poe-esque short, like horror story. It, it's so perfect that I, for a second, I was like, did this guy just make this up? Because yeah. he knew that it was going to piss people on the internet off. Did you see the comment to it that's like, what the funny thing is that this guy is literally gaslighting you? Yes, yeah, but being told that you are gaslighting someone when you're not is them is, gaslighting is the, you. Is a form of gaslighting? Uh, I would like a follow-up. I hope he gets his $100. He did. I believe he did. Okay, good. I think I saw he fi- I, they shared a Venmo um, request. Okay, great. But yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of like conflict that requires you to like not just like apologize something away, but like actively, actively uh, you know, Make making it. Let's draw. Let's pull it back to uh, AA. He's talking about the ninth step, which is making amends. How do you make amends? Uh, money. Do, does that? Do you think that that fixes everything? No, that would be the easiest way. Just go to everybody you've you've hurt with your alcoholism and give them a hundred dollar bill. Yeah, that's that sounds good. That's the one step <laughs> that's program. The, that's the one step program. Just pay everyone. Pay off. everyone off. Um, uh. No, well, I mean, that's the thing about amends is that the first, that's what I'm sure step one through eight highlight is the first step to forgiving, uh, to asking others for forgiveness is, of course, forgiving yourself. And Tiny Yule is not yeah. there on, on that journey. Because if I remember correctly, you, you can make amends, but that doesn't necessarily mean anyone has to forgive you, you know? And then so what are you going to do with that? What if you make amends and the person's like, you hurt me too badly and uh, I'm going to die mad. Yes. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do well, you then do that then? Your, your, that other person's problem. Well, yeah, but what if you're the type of person to think it's your problem? Uh, before we log off and not to hard change subjects, yeah. should I do this little piece of Hamlet because it was specifically mentioned? Bring it on. So this is uh, Act 5, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's Hamlet. These are two grave diggers talking. So it's Act, Scene, Line. Yes. Is that right? Okay. So, so V-I- Six, was it? Oh God, sorry. It, it, whatever. In the, whatever. No, no, you don't have to look it up. It's fine. Um, this is of course the gra- graveyard scene directly before the uh, the infamous York monologue, correct? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so two grave diggers talking. First grave digger. How can that be unless she drowned herself in her own defense? Second grave digger. Why tis found so? First grave digger. It must be so offendo. <laughs> it must be so offendendo, mm-hmm. it cannot be else. For here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act. And an act has three branches. It is an act to do and to perform. Argyll, she drowned herself wittingly. And the analysis is, slash background. Yes. Uh, what the first gravedigger meant to say was so often Are they talking about Ophelia? Yes. Okay. Se offendendo, Latin for self-defense which was and still is used as a legal term. He humorously picked up on his colleague's use of so in the previous line and invented a phrase which sounds like self-defense instead of uh, self-offense mm-hmm. instead of sell, self-offense. Uh, self, yeah, uh, defense. Toward the end of the line of the speech, he botches another uh, uh, Latin word when he uses the non-word argal, mm-hmm. A-R-G-A-L, for the Latin ergo, therefore. Okay. So this is supposed to be like perhaps maybe a slight... Like lightning of the whatever yeah. shit happened last. So just this I mean, guy. This is why Shakespeare's the goat. Is yeah. in the middle of something as heavy as uh, as uh, Hamlet. You got to have two rubes 
come in and do some bants and yucks to yeah. lighten it up a little bit and be like, look at these dumb guys. But yeah. even in their uh, their bants, acknowledging uh, or, or uh, elucidating the uh, seriousness of the situation with some uh, japish wordplay. An act has three branches. Is an, it, it is an act to do and to perform. Yes. So... I don't. I don't quite. I'll have to. Th- I'll have to give that some thought. Yes. Because I feel like that also somehow relates to like Tiny Ewell's thing of like, yes. you know, it is an act. It is a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. It is an intention. Yeah. Uh, and it is a an action. Maybe something yeah, like that. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know how to fucking analyze Shakespeare. Shut the fuck it's up. A, it's, it is something, and it is something that you could preconceive of, and then it is something that you have to do. So it's like brain brain crime. Uh, uh, real crime and then real crime with um, you know, malice. I don't know. It's funny that he doesn't. David Foster Wallace doesn't appear to be super curious about lawyers in general. You know, mm-hmm. he's more of a he's a he's an accountant guy, not a lawyer guy. Rhetoric. So often dendo. So often dendo. He's so often dendo. As I imagine these guys. Yes. I've never seen Hamlet performed. I don't uh, even think I've seen a movie version of it. I've only read it. Are there any good movie versions of Hamlet? Hamlet. I've not seen the Coen Brothers Macbeth, though I would like to. Or the Coen Brothers Macbeth. Isn't, didn't Ethan Hawke, wasn't he in something Hamlet-y? Maybe. That I, sounds like something that would happen. I, I had a, a English teacher, literature teacher in high school who had, but that might, oh, I'll, I'll have to look into that. There was some, the, the 90s, they were really, they were really going ham on the on the Shakespeare. I feel like they pulled up slightly. Yeah. They did the Macbeth, which is obviously... Here's, again, here's media mind working at it. I think one of the ways that you would do it... I mean, they, the, so there wasn't just that movie version with Macbeth, but you take Macbeth and Hamlet in the way that Shakespeare took all these things that were already existent uh, story properties. You know, all like all of... Uh, oh, my God. That's so fucking funny. The, this was a poster on... Sorry, I just pulled up um, the, the poster for Hamlet, which is indeed a movie starring Ethan Hawke, where Ethan Hawke has his hair kind of slicked back, oh and he's doing sort of a Kubrick stare into the camera, and he's and like holding like his... code behind like him code or something? And he's wearing a tie. Are those, uh, is that actually... Is that genome behind him? I think these are, those are genome photos. Maybe. Uh, th- this poster was on my, my teacher's wall, so I th- stared at it all, every other day for is, a couple uh, of years. I highly recommend Googling the Ethan Hawke Hamlet poster. Yeah. Wildly 90s. I might tweet it after this and be like, the, this was this a whole guy, mood. This, this you, I don't know, some dumb shit. Something like that. Um, ooh, Colin McLaughlin's in it. Oh, Maybe we should watch it. Uh, Steve's on. Ooh, wow. Leah Shriver. Cast. Ooh, great cast. Julia Stiles. Ooh. Well, I don't know who I... Diane Venora is. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, the way that you do it now is um, you take the base story of Hamlet, but not the language, because the language is... Uh, I mean, it's good. It's obviously the best part of it, but it is also uh, in- incomprehensible to uh, reg- layman people. And then you make like little six episode of miniseries. So it's a mm. um, uh, do like a Hamlet, but it's L E T T E a Hamlet, a little Hamlet, as a little slice of ham. Uh, no, it's it's a, what, not an entourage series. This a kind of series where like like White Lotus is, where it's uh, every oh, every shit. season is a new ensemble. Uh, there's a word for the yeah, not I'm like serial or um, yeah, but you do that. So it's like the first season is like six to eight episodes, and it's the story of Hamlet. And then the second season is six to eight episodes, the story of Macbeth, and then you can delve into some of the uh, other King Lear. Over the story, like a mini, like a mini series, yeah. basically. 
Shit. I think that Here, the thing the right direction tone, yeah, make it a little fun. The get, reason, get at the, the funness of Shakespeare. Yeah. The reason we're still talking about him is because um he's got he's got the goods. He does have the goods. Funny. Uh quirked up sad. Quirked up white boy with a little bit of swag who could definitely bust it down sex sexual style. Yeah. Sensual style. Yeah, sensual sensual style. Yeah. One of the one of the craziest ass white boys ever. Yeah. He really he really did that. <laughs> he did not have to go that hard. <laughs> He snapped. He, 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 he snapped. He frankly snapped. He snapped he bit, and he served. Most, I mean, A, there's a reason most uh, um, teen teen comedies now are, are just Shakespeare. Like, there's literally no story. Like, he basically did all the stories. Hey, Between did, the Bible and Shakespeare, they're like, these are all the ways that people can interact with each other. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that he didn't hit, hit from the Decameron uh, <laughs> that you could dr- dig back up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And no, no, no Aesop's fables, neither? Uh, those are a little too fancy. You know, it's like bunnies and stuff. Old books. All right, bye. Bye.